coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome back Megan Ramos. You know, you don't want to keep adding fuel to the fire. So dietary choices are so important. When someone already has insulin resistance, that insulin resistance itself causes the body to produce insulin. When we look at their dietary plans, well, sure, they're not adding more fuel to the fire, but they're constantly eating all day long, and, and there's insulin being leaked in all day long. And they say, well, it can't be very much, but They've got to also remember that insulin resistance is also causing the production of insulin too. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, host of the Keto Camp Podcast. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Thank you for pressing play today, and oh boy, do we have a treat for you. Her name is Megan Ramos, and you probably know who she is, clinical researcher for over 20 years, working closely with Dr. Jason Fung, and she came on and really blessed us with her backstory, also what exactly is insulin resistance and how does it develop and turn into type 2 diabetes? She gives an amazing analogy to Adele, the musician Adele, and you're going to hear exactly what I'm referring to, and it's going to really help it stick and land and understand exactly what insulin resistance is and how to truly reverse it for good and type 2 diabetes, reverse it for good. Megan Ramos is also going to be speaking about fasting. She shares some really amazing fasting variations and strategies. These are for those who are experienced fasters. We talk about what can you have during your fast, fat, bone broth, supplements, or just water. She gives a great analogy on that as well. She's going to explain the benefits of a 48-hour fast and why it's important to mix up your fasting schedule. We're going to talk about what to look for in terms of glucose and ketones throughout the fast. She also talks about the role of electrolytes and how that is so important. And we get into her book, Life in the Fasting Lane, which you could purchase today. I'll drop a link for that book in the notes down below of the podcast. Now, this recording was from last week as we wrapped up an amazing seven-day keto challenge. There were thousands of you from all across the world, from South Africa, South America, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Alaska, Canada, Hawaii, of course, all over the US, South America. It was just incredible. We had seven days of just training on keto and fasting, and it was the best one we've done yet. So I took the session we did with Megan Ramos, and I'm uploading it right now today on this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. You're going to love 
what she had to share. Some of the members were so inspired. So I wanted to release this for you today, and you are blessed to have it because this is the first time we are releasing this. Now, I also want to offer you something super cool. We have all of the Keto Kickstart Challenge recordings along with detailed notes and references and resources, and we had a professional put it all together, and we uploaded it into an online portal, which all you need to do is create a username and password, and actually you could get access to all of the recordings. That's seven sessions and a bonus session. Session one, we talked about how to start keto or how to break a keto stall. Session two, we dove deeper into keto, how to know you were doing keto the right way, what are the lab markers to order, what are the optimal ranges, how do you test ketones, what are the optimal ranges for testing ketones, why bitters are so important, how to prevent the keto flu, etc. Session three was with Dr. David Jockers on resetting your metabolism. He gave some really brilliant fasting and keto strategies, and if you're dealing with gut issues, this was the episode to watch. And then session four was Megan Ramos, how to beat insulin resistance and diabetes for good. You're going to hear that today. Session five, we brought on four special guests who have incredible, outstanding, inspiring before and after keto transformations, and they shared and poured their heart out. It was so inspirational. That was session five. Session six was with Cynthia Thurlow, the complete guide to keto and fasting for women. She broke it all down. She explained the difference between men and women in regards to hormones, and then she broke it down into cycling women versus postmenopausal women. We talked about her upcoming book called The Intermittent Fasting Transformation, and we dove deep in to fasting and keto for the ladies out there. It was an amazing class. That was session six. Session seven was all about keto flexing for long-term results. I went over the balancing act of mTOR and autophagy. I went over keto flexing strategies like the 5-1-1 rule. I went in over five reasons why you don't want to be keto long-term. And it was just an incredible deep dive into how to really make this lifestyle, these ancient healing strategies, stick with you and use them the right way. That was session seven. And then we did a bonus session where we just celebrated all the victories. I did a Q&A. So here's the deal. The reason I bring all this up, I wanted to offer you listening the key on the Keto Camp podcast a special opportunity to get all of the Keto Kickstart Challenge recordings, lifetime access to all the replays, including detailed notes, resource links, timestamps, and references on every session for one payment of $47. You will get it all for one payment of $47. That's it. So all you need to do is head to www.ketochallengerecordings.com. That is ketochallengerecordings, that's recordings, plural, .com. We're going to put a link for you in the podcast notes. We'll put it right at the top. Click that. You'll learn more about what we offer with this recordings, and you could get all of that for seven bucks, seven advanced trainings with all those guests I mentioned, all for seven bucks. So hopefully you take action with that and you're going to get to listen to Megan's talk from that seven-day keto challenge, which you'll see, you'll hear some of the members come on and ask Megan a question on today's episode, which I believe you'll get value from because you get to hear questions and hear Megan respond with her amazing answers. So before I bring Megan on, I just want to take a minute here to get to the Apple podcast rating and review of the day. 
This is from J.R. A. Gonzalez titled Keto Camp Podcast Review. Five stars, very good information on the Keto Camp Podcast. Between your YouTube videos and podcast, my family and I have been able to tweak and adjust our fasting methods and diets. Best thing of all is your references and research data to back all of this information up. Awesome, JR. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen and watch the YouTube channel and share it with your family. That is so cool. And then leaving that rating and review, it really does help. So thank you. Um, I want to give a free book to you, JR, if you're listening, of my KetoFlex book. That's right. A free copy of KetoFlex paperback. Email us with a screenshot of your review. Put your shipping address and we will get that book out to you. And if you haven't left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review, please do so right now on any podcast platform you're listening to and take a screenshot of that. Send it to support at ketocamp.com. Same thing for you, JR. Support at ketocamp.com, camp with the K, with your screenshot of the podcast review and your shipping address, and you will get a Keto Flex paperback book, which is my best-selling book. Okay, let's chat with Megan Ramos. Let's get right into the session with Megan Ramos, all about beating insulin resistance, beating diabetes for good, type 2 diabetes, that is, and advanced keto and fasting strategies. So Megan Ramos is a clinical educator. Y'all know who she is. She's amazing human being, amazing educator. She works closely with Dr. Jason Fung. They helped co-found the fasting method, formerly called IDM. And she is a leading authority on diabetes, insulin resistance, low carbohydrate diets, fasting. She has this book, which is called Life in the Fasting Lane. What an awesome title. So without further ado, here is my friend, the amazing Megan Ramos. Hey, Megan. <laughs> hey, Ben. Thanks for quite the introduction <laughs> there. I meant every word. We all love you here. Everybody's super excited. And, and thanks for joining us today from uh, California, right? Yeah, yeah. I recently just moved. So this is the first time I'm on camera in my new digs. Um, oh, we, get, we get the new digs the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just south of San Francisco. So it's it's great. But it's it's a little cold. My husband lured me here with the promise that it would be warm in California. While it is warmer than Toronto, it is still cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine it is. I mean, I'm in Miami. So it's uh, like 70 two degrees right now. It's, it's, it doesn't get <laughs> exactly. So Megan, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, so grateful to have you here. I just love the work that you've been doing for so long. You, you've been a huge inspiration to me. I mean, Megan was so kind to actually endorse my book. She's in the book. She, she wrote a nice little excerpt for the book. And you have been a huge inspiration, you and Dr. Funk to me and, and the, the group that I work with. So thank you. I, I would I would love for you to start real quick, just maybe with um a one to two minute share of your backstory, just for those who are not familiar with uh, how you got into the space. Yeah, so you kind of shared the business backstory. Um, so my background in research, uh, always interested in preventative medicine, had these metabolic conditions myself, PCOS and fatty liver disease as a teenager, but they told me not to worry about it because I was skinny. But as I got older, I realized, you know, I, I might not have weighed very much, but I was all fat. I wasn't very strong. I had brittle bones. Uh, and then I did become quite visually obese. So I went from skinny fat to uh, just totally overweight with type 2 diabetes and trying to find out-of-the-box solutions, working with my colleague, Jason Fong, 
decided to try fasting and yeah, in six months I got my life back. It's been pretty remarkable. That is, that's pretty short time, six months. And you mentioned the skinny fat, you know, people think if they're skinny or some, they know somebody who's skinny, they, that means they're healthy. So could you explain what exactly that means? How, how is somebody metabolically unhealthy, but they look super lean and skinny? Yeah. So if you think of it, we have two very main general categories of fat. We have subcutaneous fat and then we have visceral fat. Now, subcutaneous fat, that's the fat that we're sort of self-conscious of when we're at the beach and thinking about putting on that bathing suit or taking off our beach cover up. It's a fat that sits between our abdominal wall and our abdominal cavity. So, you know, in, in our bodies, we have all these organs and glands, and then there's a shield called the abdominal cavity. It's like a dome that's meant to help provide them with some protection. And the subcutaneous fat sits between our skin and this dome. So it doesn't exactly go into our organs and wrap around our organs or infiltrate our organs. And it's, it's unsightly. And if we accumulate more of it, of course, it puts us at risk for, for disease. Um, but then the secondary type of fat, visceral fat, this is a real sneaky bugger. Visceral fat, it is the fat that's under that, uh, that dome, that abdominal cavity, and it wraps around your organs and it infiltrates into your organs. And all of our organs, they need to communicate with each other and our brain. They need to be sending, they're sending constant messages all day long. It's like the craziest social network, like in, in our bodies with, with engagement. But that fat disrupts that. And then, so especially if the fat's wrapped around it, it's like putting on headphones uh, and not being able to hear the messages that are coming in or earplugs. And then the fat that infiltrates inside, well, that disrupts functioning. So, you know, Jason and I would see in our clinic when we had that in Toronto, that these pancreases would just be loaded with fat. And type 2 diabetes is typically a disease of too much insulin. But what we would see is we would get these fatty pancreases that were just so loaded with fat, they couldn't even produce insulin in some cases. So we would have to fast the patient, get rid of the fat, work with them on their diet, of course. And then we would actually see their insulin levels go up a bit. Of course, we don't want it to go up too high. It's about finding that sort of sweet spot. But this is the type of issue that we can run into with this visceral fat. So, but visceral fat, you can have a lot of it and still look really sexy to the naked eye. Um, but this is the type of fat that's really scary because you might look at yourself in the mirror and think, oh, you know, I look great. And your doctor might give you like thumbs up because your weight on the scale says that your weight is good. But we need to keep in mind that that scale doesn't tell us what our body's made out of. That scale is a reflection of things like muscle mass, bone mass, water mass, and fat mass. And if your muscle mass is low and your bone mass is low, maybe, and your fat mass is high, that's not very good. And even in my own journey, like, look, I, at one point, I'm barely five feet tall, but at one point. Well, I, I didn't know that. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're tiny, Megan. I'm six foot two. We would be matched together. <laughs> yeah, my husband's six foot four, so we look ridiculous wow. together. Um, but I, at one point, I was like 97 pounds, but I was, uh, I had more body fat than I do now at 120 pounds. Wow. So if you were to actually see photos of me from that point, like, I look at um, what most people say leaner. 
um, overall, I wear actually a smaller size clothes. So we're looking at like a 23 pound weight difference, but the difference is my body composition. I have less fat. I have more muscle. I've worked so hard, you know, in the gym, doing resistance training, on my nutrition, really trying to have healthy bone mass density. So now when I trip and fall, I don't break bones anymore. Um, so it's really about, about the body composition. So we've got all these people walking around, you know, thinking that, the, they're healthy because of what that scale says and their traditional doctor is giving them those thumbs up because their height to weight ratios considered quote unquote normal or good. Um, but they actually have tons, they have a poor body composition. They might be thin on the outside, but they're fat on the inside. So we call it TOFI for short. TOFI, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. I, I know a lot of TOFIs, by the way. Mm -hmm. So how do you, if you're not looking at the scale, how, what are some more accurate ways to kind of get an idea of your fat to muscle mass ratio? Yeah, absolutely. So I always kind of get um, a shot on the foot for not saying the absolute gold standard. Um, so that would be an MRI, but like, who's going to pay for that? Well, some people, but <laughs> the rest of us, not most, not most of us. Um, so something that's really common is a DEXA body composition scan. So most of most of us, especially women, um, that as we get older, we know our doctors send us for bone mass density uh, DEXA scans. This is different. It's a it's a scan you you lay down. This little ring goes across you. It's done in like less than a minute. Um, and it, it's similar to a, a bone mass density scan, but it's different. It just gives you sort of a general overview of your bone mass density, but it does sort of give you a breakdown of your body fat and your muscle mass and where that body fat is, where that muscle mass is. And I think it's a really you know, sort of reliable tool. There's a couple of caveats to that though. So there's the DEXA body composition scan, of course, progress photos, they don't lie. Uh, we, we really encourage people to not necessarily pay that much, like pay, hang on to their scale. Like their scale is not your safety blanket because especially when you're doing interventions like fasting, you do have the potential to gain lean mass because you produce quite a lot of human growth hormone when you're fasting. It's one of the benefits of fasting. It helps you lose weight. So it's awesome. We want it to happen. Um, we want to produce it, but it can help you get stronger, which again is something that we want. We don't want to deteriorate with age, but you can't always see the changes on the scale. You might lose body fat, but gain some muscle mass. Uh, and then it doesn't look like there's any change on the scale. We see this all the time people getting you know, just in tears, their pants are falling off them, but that scale hasn't had a remarkable drop. So they think that something's wrong. It's like, no, this is fantastic. I mean, you're a 66 year old woman here and you're gaining muscle mass. Like how freaking cool is that? Bo like good bone mass sensitivity, good muscles protecting your joints as you age. Like that is going to, you're going to have such a cool retirement. Like you're going to be so healthy. You want that. Um, so body composition from the DEXA uh, progress photos, they're not going to lie. So that is something that you can do. Everybody's got these gadgets and gizmos attached to them nowadays. So you can take a quick selfie. You don't have to show it to the world. Uh, it can be your own private, uh, private 
tool for tracking. You can also check your uh, weight to hip ratio. You do want um, your waist circumference to be less than half your height in inches. And it's an okay marker of body composition. But then again, we still get those really skinny uh, tofies. And so it's not necessarily the, the most accurate. And then there are some scales at home um, that you can use. Some are definitely much better than others. So we encourage you to, to do your uh, research. There's a one called the Embody. Typically, they'll have it at gyms or functional health clinics, but they now have a scale at home that I've been playing around with. That's pretty cool. Uh, and do you find that to be yeah. the, the in-home, in-body one? Do you find the people pretty good to give you an idea of what's going on? Yeah, I like it. And then I really like the Omron ones. I have no affiliation with them. They're a really great price point, And they've always been on target with my DEXAs. So I'll go for a DEXA every six months. or Well, now it's more like annually. But throughout my journey, I go every six months. And I just want to speak quickly to the two caveats with that. For some reason, and I'm not quite sure what it is, I should ask a team psychologist, before we do a test, it, there's something that often triggers people to perhaps go off plan with their diet for whatever reason. And, I, and as a, someone who's been in this clinical space, I've noticed this is a behavioral trend. But what happens is if you go off plan, you eat a lot of processed and refined foods. You are going to retain a lot of water mass. And you're also, if there's sugar, you're going to store a lot of glycogen. And when you do the body, uh, DEXA body comp scan, it, that glycogen storage, uh, you, it's going to make your muscles look larger. So it's going to throw off your body composition and make you look like you have more muscle mass than you do. But it's not, we, you know, we don't want to have tons and tons of excessive glycogen stores. So, you know, um, and water retention and all that jazz. So when we lose all of that and we're on track and we do a DEXA, it might actually look like we've lost lean mass. And that's not necessarily the case. So usually encourage people, you know, really make sure you're consistent with your diet for a good week before you go. Like there's ebbs and flows and it's a journey. And uh, it took me a few years to negotiate my relationship with food um, to sort of fully felt like you know, I was in control of all of the ebbs and flows of life that would direct me in certain eating uh, patterns. So I can sympathize. But really, it's just best to rebook the test. Another thing is at, at baseline, if you are someone with a lot of visceral fat, but like that's in your organs, so you've got fatty liver disease. Well, when the fat is stuffed into the liver, it makes the liver look really big. And the scan picks up that up as muscle mass. So as you start to fast, that's actually one of the places where you lose fat first, which is great because that's like sort of ground zero for diabetes development. We want to get rid of that fat. Um, so it might look like your muscle mass has decreased. So this is why, you know, I know that for, for some people, DEXA scans are really inexpensive. I know in our area now, you can buy a whole bunch of them for pretty much the cost of one in Toronto. Um, so there are places where they're economical. So people want to go often, but there's these little nuances. So I find every four to six months tends to be a good range where these nuances get evened out a little bit. And it's just better for tracking your general trends. Great tips right there. You know, that's why some people in the fitness space will say, yeah, fasting is going to cause you to lose muscle mass. And they're, they're referencing that right there. It's, it's the excess glycogen stores that are being depleted. And that's a good thing. You know, it's the fatty liver that's, that's losing some of the fat. That's a good thing. But it might show up on those scans as muscle mass being lost. But that's not true. 
So it's important to stick with the plan and do a few scans throughout the year, like Megan is referencing. What, what you shared was so important about the scale being a liar, you know, both ways. And I, I talk about that a lot. And I know Alina, who, who's the uh, chief operating officer here at Keto Camp, she also has seen it too with members. Their clothes are fitting better. They have more energy. Their sleep is improved. They have more confidence. Skin conditions are improving, but that scale is kind of staying the same. And they think that it's not working and they're missing all these amazing benefits, but yet that number on the scale is not working. It doesn't mean you're not losing body fat. It could mean so the, the scale will fluctuate for so many reasons. I mean, a monthly cycle for a woman will she'll retain more water. It'll show on the scale being sore from a workout. You'll retain more water that might show up on the scale. But also, like you said, when you're doing more fasting, HDH, human growth hormone, is going up. So you're actually building muscle, and that, that muscle weighs more than fat. So you're not going to see that rapid weight loss like you might want to see. But we're not focusing on weight loss. We're focusing on health. So the, the, the bare minimum thing you all can do, which is part of your action steps, I think I gave it to you on day two, which take photos of yourself. I did this when I was going through my transformation in 2008 of me without my shirt. You keep it to yourself, you know, front, back, side do it again in 30 days and just look at that and throw away that damn scale. So I love that you mentioned that, Megan, because too many people get hung up on that scale. Now, uh, I want to ask the question about insulin. Uh, and I'll just ask you a general question here and you could get into the specifics. Is insulin bad for you? Well, <laughs> too much of anything that's good for you is bad for you. So not having enough insulin that's a problem. But having too much of insulin too is also a problem. And then a bigger problem is that mainstream medicine doesn't understand what that definition of too much insulin actually is. True. So, so that's, that's, a, that's another big issue that we, we handle with a lot. So if your pancreas is unable to produce adequate insulin, insulin is involved in so many things within the body. So it's not always just about, you know, lowering blood glucose levels. But we know from those with type 1 diabetes, juvenile type 1 diabetes, these autoimmune conditions where the pancreas just can't produce insulin. And then someone does need insulin injections. Now, what I feel about that is I have a friend and I'm going to out him here, but he's, he's a personal friend. We were at a funeral for a friend's dad several years ago, and he was a type one juvenile type one diabetic and he had his insulin pump and he filled his plate up with pastries at the funeral reception. And he was going to town and just pumping that up. And I asked him, you know, Dan, like how much insulin are you taking a day? It's about 300 units. And I'm just like, what the heck? Um, and uh, I, I, you know, we started chatting and I made a comment like, you got to stop this. So the next funeral we're going to be at is yours. A week later, he had an appointment with his doctor and his kidney numbers started to not necessarily be so good. And his doctor said to him, you know what? You're type one diabetic. You're doomed. This is your fate. So this is a guy who honestly, if he was sitting on the couch and there was like my little pony was on the TV, he would just watch it rather than get up and get the remote control to change the channel. He would just suffer through something really silly uh, <laughs> for him because he just didn't have the energy. Anyways, the, the whole kidney situation scared the heck out of him because he had a cousin who was on dialysis and had this terrible quality of life. And we worked really hard to just get him the amount of insulin that he needed 
for the day. So we worked on his diet, his meal timing, did some light fasting um, with him. And we were able to get him down to about 30 units a day from 300. Wow. Wow. And he's just riding that. It's been several years now until the pandemic, uh, especially because Canada has been a little loopy with lockdowns and stuff. Um, he ran in every single marathon the city of Toronto had for like three years in a row. He got himself into good shape, good health. His kidney numbers rebounded. His doctor thinks, oh, my gosh, like this is a miracle. So there is a time and a place for insulin for certain people, like insulin injections for certain people. But if you don't have that autoimmune pancreatic disorder, and if your pancreas is completely capable of putting good insulin output, then causing it to put out too much insulin is going to have a negative problem. So I always use this, it's more pertinent now, it hasn't been really relevant for like the last 10 years. Um, but I always use Adele as, a, and as an analogy here. Um, Adele, she had a new album out, but her last album, her hit song was Hello. And I loved Adele. She didn't know she was my best friend. Um, when her first album came out, I was going through a really rough breakup. So she became my best friend, my therapist. She was everything. She so probably was, knows who you are. <laughs> I imagine Adele knows who you are. May, maybe now. I talk about her so much in this analogy. But when that song Hello came out, at first I loved it. And everybody loved it. It won like every Grammy, every award. It was on the top billboard charts forever. And one day I'm driving home and it's, the song that's playing on all of my preset radio stations in the car. This is the time before everybody just listens to Spotify. Um, and, but all of the radio stations. And all I did was want to scream goodbye to, to Adele, even though she was screaming hello to me. Mm -hmm. But I had developed Adele resistance from mm -hmm. overexposure, excessive exposure to this song. So what happens when we eat a diet, diet that's high in processed and refined sugars and fats and we're eating all of the time, we're not only exposing our body to uh, or making our body produce lots of insulin, we're making it produce lots of insulin over time. It's like we're trying to force every cell in our body to listen to Adele on repeat. <laughs> so, of course, they're going to revolt against that song, Hello. Um, so we get this overexposure and our cells start to become resistant to the, our own insulin uh, again. And then that insulin can't do its job. It can't get glucose into the cell and cells eventually are going to be starving for energy. This is why people who are overweight and have metabolic disorders like type 2 diabetes feel so fatigued all of the time. Well, their cells are screaming for energy. It just can't get in there. And then the insulin then has to store that excess you know, sugar fuel as fat, and then the it just pools up, the insulin's more or less useless. So what they do is they try to give you other medications or other insulins to try to trick your body, but we eat the same. So we develop resistance towards that. So this is how a diabetic goes from just being on metformin to two or three oral medications to one type of insulin to medications and two or three types of insulin. Uh, or even Jason and I had patients come in on over 500 units of insulin a day. We're talking like three or four different types of insulin and their A1C. So that sort of three 120 day look at blood sugar levels, you know, we want it under 5.2. We're seeing it even on 500 units of insulin over like 13, which is just wild. So they're completely on, 
unregulated. So, um, you know, what happens now is that song Hello by Adele, they don't play that on the radio like 24-7 anymore. She's got a new album and other hit songs have come out. But now when we're driving, say, down the coast and it comes on, oh, it's really nice. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Mm -hmm. And I'm my Adele resistance to that song has gone away. And that's what we try to do with fasting and nutritional strategies um, as well. Now, there's insulin, again, does play other roles in the body. And, and there are benefits from sort of doing a bit of a cyclical approach too, which is approach that I tend to take with my diet. And now we're sort of in family planning. So I am eating a little bit, especially uh, more towards the second half of, of my monthly cycles, which is, hey, I'm, you know, enjoying, <laughs> enjoying a little bit more tubers than I have in the past on a regular basis. Um, but so there is a time and a place and, and, and a purpose to have, have it, but you just don't want it to be your constant state. And for North Americans, our constant state is to pretty much always be producing insulin all of the time. And while our cells they're going to stop. They're going to develop that resistance. So absence makes the heart grow fonder. We, you know, we do that. You do that through combinations of dietary strategies and through time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting strategies. It's a great analogy. The, uh, uh, now I'm never going <laughs> to... Every time I hear a doubt, I'm always going to think about this, this analogy here. It's, it's a great analogy, and you're so right. Um, and when we look at America, and it's the same with Canada and all over the U.S., but America, yeah. America specifically, uh, it's estimated that 88% of Americans are metabolically inflexible, right? They're sugar burners. They're grazing throughout the day. And when we, look, when we just simply study the three macronutrients, carbohydrates, protein, and fat, we know that carbohydrates will give you the biggest glucose and insulin response. Now, of course, it depends on what type of carbohydrates you have processed versus green leafy vegetables will have a different response, but still a glucose and insulin response. And then protein has a glucose and insulin response, but it's not as much as carbs. It's what's considered a phase two insulin response. So it's a little bit less. And then fat doesn't really produce any glucose and insulin, right? So if you just look at that, and then you compare that to keto, eating clean fats and doing intermittent fasting. What a powerful way to drop your excess blood sugars and reverse insulin resistance. Is that why one of the many reasons why you love low carb? Yeah, I, I love the combination of the approaches for people that are trying to tackle these metabolic conditions because through a low low carb approach, wherever you are on the low carb uh, spectrum of dietary preferences here, as long as it's real food based, you're not adding more fuel to the fire. And you're giving your body a sort of a chance to burn off some of that fire. And then with fasting, though, you're really suffocating that fire. So one thing that um, why I think the two got to go hand in hand is, you know, you don't want to keep adding fuel to the fire. So dietary choices are so important. But when someone already has insulin resistance, that insulin resistance itself causes the body to produce insulin. So we see so many people that come to you, they come to, to, to me, you know, they've lost 30 of that 80 pounds or 50 of that 80 pounds. They brought their A1C down to six, you know, but through nutritional choices, but why can't they optimize it? Are they, you know, quote unquote, beyond broken? And this is the type of individual that we often see coming in 
to our community. And when we look at their dietary plans, well, sure, they're not adding more fuel to the fire, but they're constantly eating all day long. And, and there's insulin being leaked in all day long. And they say, well, it can't be very much. But they've got to also remember that insulin resistance is also causing the production of insulin too. So we do fast, we do different various time restricted eating, intermittent fasting protocols, occasionally extended fasting protocols. And this job really helps break the cycle of insulin resistance because you're really suffocating that fire. And once you get rid of the insulin resistance, you're not going to see that causing its own insulin production and perpetuating the disease. So when we put the two hand in hand, people see that A1C drop below 5.2. People see that last, you know, 20, 30 pounds come off and they can really sort of heat, reach their health goals. Oh, I, and I see, I see it too. Very, very often. The body's amazing. You just got to remove the interferences. That's exactly what you're referring to. Um, I'm just checking the time here. Okay. We're going to do VIP Q&A in about 10 to 15 minutes. So for those of you who are VIP, this is now your opportunity to go into your email. We emailed you about 30 minutes before the live stream with a StreamYard link to go into the backstage. I see Michelle back there and Marta. And there's almost 200 of you on the live stream here in the Facebook group. So if you're watching and you're VIP, head into the back end studio. And this is going to be a cool opportunity to come on here and ask Megan some questions. Um, Megan, I want to transition into some more advanced keto and fasting strategies uh, for those who are not beginners. So because there's some in here that are not beginners. So what are some advanced specifically fasting strategies that you'd like to use? I know that you're a big fan of mixing things up, just like a great personal trainer always will mix up the routine for their clients so the body could adapt and get results. You like that with fasting, me too. So what are some advanced fasting strategies and schedules that you use and apply to your patients? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a whole whole bunch. I mean, we really encourage people to sort of look at their lifestyle and plan fasting in because that's going to create a lot of variation. One week, it might be a three-day fast. One week, it might be 248s. One week, it might be 324s. The point is that you at least show up for three full days of the week and you don't slip into this one meal a day pattern on a, on a consistent basis. Why? Uh, Why don't you want to do that? Because the body adapts and, and the body will adapt to a new dietary budget. You want to keep confusing it and you want to keep changing it up so the body doesn't adapt. Um, so it's great to great to mix things up. So we're, we're big fans of sort of the rule of three, really trying to do three 24 to 42 hour fasts a week. And if you can't do that, then 248s. And so many people really love the 248s when they have other individuals at home, especially if they're the cook. And so with 248 hour fasts a week, you're getting in pretty intensive fasting. Um, you know, people will say, if you look at the total math of it, 248s versus uh, 342s, that it's less total numbers of hours in a fasted state. Sure. I mean, that's the math. It doesn't lie. But with the 248s, you're getting in an extra 12 hours in a deeper fasted state. So for someone who's been doing sort of this alternate daily pattern and is struggling, uh, you know, sometimes sort of forcing that fast a little bit into a deeper state, even if it's only six hours extra of fast, can be hugely impactful. So people are always kind of mind blown. They've been doing 342s, which I think most people would agree is an intensive intermittent plan. Yeah. And they've been doing that, but they're hitting a wall. They're hitting a wall. Well, okay, you know, let's maybe not do as much total fasting, but let's maybe do more deeper fasting. So 
the 242s, or sorry, 248s, I, I love them for people because it's two nights of the week that they're not eating with family, friends, whoever's in their, their social circle or their household. If they're the cooks at home, we have lots of, uh, lots of people who are the cooks at home. I have suddenly become the cook in my house, which is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Yeah, it's terrifying. So, like, I'm all about ADF right now since it reduces the number of times a week I have to eat. Um, <laughs> I don't like to cook either. But for those of us who do, or those of us who have to, like, I'll just make my husband fast. But some people are not going to be able to do that with their uh, households. So, it's only two nights a week that family is eating leftovers or that, you know, people with kids, maybe it's only two nights a week where mom's eating a weird soup at dinner, like just having bone broth with a spoon or, you know, it's having a cup of, you know, mint tea or a glass of lemon water or something at the table. There's only two weeks where you're trying to do other activities. I used to go to yoga class a few nights a week when my family was eating dinner because I was living with family when I first started fasting. And that way I did something um, not present with them. And, uh, but I get that. If you've got younger kids at home, you want to be be at home with them. Um, so it just lessens the amount of focus that there is on on your diet from those people around you. And it still gives you a great amount of fasting every week. And I, it's a protocol that I love because pre-COVID times when uh, you, I mean, now things are more normal here, but, um, pre COVID times in Toronto, I could just book all work and, and dinner, you know, lunch or meetings or whatever on Wednesdays. Like that was just going to be my meeting day. And it was just a really quick and easy way to organize my calendar. And then, um, I would do from Sunday night to Tuesday night and then from, uh, Wednesday night to Friday night. And then Friday night I could go with uh, my significant other friends, family, and it gave me some some great social flexibility and I had the weekends. So I just love the balance of fasting and, and eating on that particular strategy. Um, for people that are looking to build their way up to doing an extended fast, uh, this is a great strategy to do as well, where you get in a fast at the beginning of the week and one at the end of the week. And then we try to bridge the gap in the middle of the week. So we'll go from doing, say, from Sunday night to Tuesday night, a 48-hour fast. Then we'll extend it to uh, ends at Wednesday at lunch as a 66-hour fast. And then we'll go, we'll extend it to Wednesday at dinner, and that's a 72-hour fast. And then eventually, you know, we'll rip off the Band-Aid, and it's a five-day fast. So that's a bridging strategy approach we do for those who are, are, are able to and desire doing an extended fast, but are, don't necessarily just want to rip off the Band-Aid and jump into it. A strategy that I got into for a while with that last stubborn 10 or 15 pounds, and I find that this works pretty well, would be to do a 72-hour fast. Um, but then having four days in a row of consecutive eating is just too much. Um, so if you do one, say, from Sunday to Wednesday night, then doing, say, like a 24 or something on that Friday before the weekend times just to break it up. So there's a lot of people out there that are trying that, especially women in general, I can talk to this in, in a little bit because it has to do with our hormonal patterns versus um, male hormonal patterns. They like to do a 72 because once they get into the fast, it's just easier for them to stay into that fast. 
but then they have four days of eating and it just doesn't jive. And, you know, snacking, grazing is like our biggest, like one of our biggest dietary issues. And then everybody's diets in an evolution. So um, it's just too much. So you always, you do need to break it up, even if it's a mild fast, like a 24. Uh, and that tends to be what makes doing those 72s more consistent. Why might a woman or an older woman in particular, like doing a 72-hour fast compared to ADF, uh, for example, so alternate daily fasting. Women and men, uh, our primary hunger hormone is called ghrelin. And when men and women both start fasting, we see a drop in ghrelin. But then men's ghrelin tends to just sort of go up and down and, and it stays relatively consistent. So when men start fasting, they do see a reduction in that secretion of this hunger hormone. Um, but then they just sort of see this constant kind of flow of it. So men, you want to do a three day fast, you want to do alternate daily fast, you're just dealing with a moderate amount of hormonal like hunger from ghrelin. Um, now women experience sort of a bit of a different flow, they experience that initial drop, but then it actually continues to decline more um, compared to their male counterparts before it starts to ebb and flow. So women eventually can see a long, a more significant drop in this additional, you know, hunger stimulating situation that we might encounter, this ghrelin hormone. Um, and that really starts to come after about that first 36 hours. So women are saying, why am I stopping my hunger when it's absolutely not, or why am I stopping my fast when it's absolutely non-existent? And then we see that when women jump in to fast, their ghrelin tends to go up faster and higher than male counterparts. So what a lot of women feel like they're constantly putting out sort of this bigger fire, you know, when it comes to doing alternate daily fasting or like Monday, Wednesday, Friday fasting, and they'd rather get into the fast and just stay there. Now, not everybody's sort of affected that way. I think what kept my sanity, you know, throughout so much of my initial journey was knowing that I could eat the next day. To me, that was kind of like the, the golden, you know, piece of bacon that inspired me to continue with my fast. And I didn't really struggle with any of those hunger trends. Um, but there are definitely, uh, in every 10 women that come in, there's one that says, can I just stay in, in that fast? And the answer is yes, but then we want to do something about the eating. You've either got to really cut out all the snacks really make sure we're reducing the problematic foods. Uh, and if that's still a work in progress, we got to get in that 24 to, to break up those four days of eating. Those are some really amazing strategies. And for those of you who are new, like you would build up to this, right? You wouldn't do this the, during these seven days. It's, it's like a, fasting is like a muscle, right? You would work up to it. And then those are some amazing strategies to do so. Um, would you recommend, Megan, during a longer fast, let's say 24 hours or longer, would you do you suggest looking at glucose and ketones throughout that? And if you do suggest that, what do you want? What kind of trends do you want to see? So um, typically glucose uh, is is a marker that um, we tend to gravitate a little bit more to, um, although I'm a huge fan of uh, I'm a huge fan of tracking. I'm a scientist, so I'll track all of the things under the sun. Um, but what you're going to see with glucose levels is that they are going to vary during the fast. So if you're someone with type 2 diabetes or metabolic disease, you might notice that they're a little bit high in the morning. And you could be frustrated thinking, I didn't eat for the last 10 
you know, 12, 14 hours, hopefully, you know, <laughs> 14 hours um, from the time you wake up. Um, but that's something called the dawn effect or the dawn phenomenon where your liver is actually trying to help you out. It's trying to dump out excess sugar that it's got sitting into it so you can burn it off in the morning time. So like your liver is already pre-fueling your body. You don't need to go for food, just burn that off. So what we'll typically see is in the morning that glucose will be a little bit higher. And this is like, we all experience this to some degree, but people mm -hmm. who definitely have more metabolic issues will see this be like much more significant in their cases and over time it will come down plus, um, plus cortisol is also higher in the morning so that could also raise glucose so a combination of both right yeah yeah there's different cyclical cycles of hormones and, and cortisol is definitely a glucose driving hormone and many of us produce way too much cortisol too in the morning time so it's supposed to be our highest production time of day and then we're all stressed all of the time and life is chaotic so uh, the stress adds tons of fuel to the fire which is a big thing that I think a big epidemic that we need to work on as well. So Plus, yeah, I was going to say, that's another reason why you don't want to have caffeine coffee first thing in the morning. Cause that cortisol is already high. You're just adding more fuel to the fire. So wait an hour and a half as cortisol drops down, then you have your cup of coffee. So remember that you will survive. I remember <laughs> you actually telling me this about my tea. I don't drink caffeine oh, yeah. or, or tea at all anymore i drink water wow. um right now um but i used to think of you every morning i would be like you need to wait <laughs> ben wants you to wait and like i understood the science but the rational part of me at 5 a.m did not screw <laughs> <laughs> ben but hey I, I don't have it anymore and that was wicked to come off of um so i never want to go back on it and, but yeah, you, there's many reasons. And then throughout the day, you should see the glucose levels come down. But if you're exercising in a fasted state, your body is going to liberate sort of store glucose. Um, so you will see your glucose levels go up. So this is something, a glucose trend um, question that we're often asked like all of the time. If I work out after eating, my glucose levels go down. If I work out in a fasted state, my glucose levels go up. And every, the latter, people think that means their diabetes is worse or maybe they're type 1 diabetic. They start freaking out. But it's just that when you're in the fasted state, your body's providing you with fuel versus if you just ate a meal and then an hour or two later you go to work out, well, you've provided yourself with a lot of fuel. So there's a lot go in the system. The body doesn't need to liberate any of it. So we'll use it up and then you'll see your levels go down. But if you are in a fasted state, your body's got to, doesn't know what you need, dumps out a bunch, and then it will store, it will come back down afterwards. So that's a common, common trend. Even during a crazy extended fast, people on days of higher activity will see their glucose go up. Or I'm someone who just tends to run a little bit on the lower side. I feel fantastic. But if I'm trying, if I want to keep going with my fast and keep feeling fantastic, I'll do some physical activity. And some push-ups, some squats, I'll bounce on my rebounder, I'll go to the gym and do weight training. Uh, and it will bring my glucose levels up a little bit and I'll feel better. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, I, that it, it can be a really good tool, exercise to drive glucose up a bit when you're in a fasted state. That can be a good idea. I, yeah, I love exercise in the fasted state. And even though my glucose goes up, 
temporarily, it's not a bad thing. Like Megan said, it's your body releasing excess stored sugars, and then you're going to burn it off. Then that's going to drop back down. I'm going to, I'm going to bring on some of the VIP members. So I see Michelle, Michelle, give me a thumbs up in the backstage. Okay. She's going to come on here and ask you a question, Megan. So here is Michelle. Good morning. It's funny. I had three questions and without me even asking them, you answered them all along, but then you, you triggered something else. But before I ask you my question, I have to tell you on my journey, um, I found Jason and you very early on and I started my journey on talk like a pirate day in 2018, <laughs> because I'll never forget that date. Unfortunately, I had a stroke three weeks later, so I wasn't early enough to catch that, but that's neither here nor there. On the dawn phenomenon, what I find that brings my glucose down is when I eat protein. So I've tried to like fast a little longer to see if it would come down and it doesn't. But if I eat like a hard boiled egg or something, it will drop hard and into a good range. Is that a thing? Is that just weird? Is that just me? Because I can be weird, but I don't know. Well, so when you eat protein, you notice your blood glucose levels, yeah, blood glucose levels drop. Yeah. You're not uh, an anomaly. It's, it's a really uh, common trend. Um, glucose, uh, the the response to to protein is not um, necessarily a very significant response. So when you eat something like a hard boiled egg, you're not adding glucose to the system. And there's there is a little bit of insulin secreted, uh, as Ben said. So that little bit of insulin secretion might just drop your blood glucose levels a little bit. So when you say having a, an egg or some people that I work with will have an omelet and they'll be like, why did my glucose levels come down? Well, you are getting a little bit of insulin secretion and you're not driving your glucose levels up through the meal that you're having. So the insulin is working and it's just bringing your glucose levels down a little bit. So long as you feel okay, I wouldn't say that there's anything wrong with that. I think it's quite a normal response to have. Okay. So if I, if I have a morning where the dawn phenomenon is there, should I try to write it out or is it better to eat that protein to bring it down? Uh, I hear what you're saying. I always think it's best to write it out. Your body is giving you this fuel, so it's always great to maybe do a workout, maybe go for a walk, get busy around the house, uh, do laundry. That was something I did. I would do laundry. I would do chores first thing in the morning just to, to bring it down. So you would want to burn that fuel. What happens is if you eat fuel, your body is going to fuel off of that, and then whatever fuel it liberated is going to continue to store. So we want to get rid of it in the, in the system. So if you are experiencing higher levels of sugar in the morning, eating that, sure, there's going to be some insulin. It's going to come down, but it's just going to be stored. Um, so we want to actually burn it off in the morning time. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Great question. Awesome. Um, next, we have Marta. Oh, hi. Hi, Megan. Thank you for hi, taking Marta. my uh, question. I came on late, so I don't know if this maybe was answered already. Uh, so I have insulin resistance. I uh, went on metformin. I take 1,000 milligrams uh, extended release at night for about past two years and dropped my A1C from 6 to 5.7 just with low carb. Uh, but I don't have... Uh, much like losing weight with keto, and I know I, I get discouraged and never really progress to fasting. Uh, but uh, how long on average does, does it take? And uh, 
when would I know that I can start dropping the dose of metformin or is it something that once you start taking it, you're just kind of stuck with it? Yeah, Marta, so great questions. Um, you know, with metformin, um, people are not stuck on it if they don't, if they don't want to be. Uh, at, when we had our clinic in Toronto, we would take people off metformin all of the time. Uh, metformin, even extended release metformin often made people stomach upset too. So they're happy to get rid of it for them so long as the sugars were normalized. Now, of course, when it comes to uh, satisfactory blood glucose levels, everybody needs to work with their, with their own doctor because we're not familiar with your health. But what we would do in the clinic Jason would do is if a person was starting to consistently see blood glucose levels under 140, um, then he would start to reduce the metformin. So uh, 1,000 milligrams to 500 milligrams to 250, or sometimes they, the patient even wanted to go more slowly, 1,000 to 750 to 500 to, to 250 to, to nada. So we would reduce it slowly. And as long as the sugars kept staying down and kept trending down towards that normal range, then there is no need for them to, to be on the medications. So that's, that's the range that we looked at and we would start, depending of course on how much the person was fasting and what their diet was would depend on, on how drastic, if we go from 2000 milligrams to 1000 or if we go from 2000 to 1500. So those factors would play a role as well in reducing the metformin. So that's fasting blood sugar? The 140? Yeah. Okay. Below 140. Okay. And you have to be below uh, 100 to, and stay below 100 fasting to, to feel comfortable that you don't need metformin pretty much. I uh, mean, that would be ideal. You, you definitely want to see your numbers sitting there for a period of time. Now, in, with, with our group, we do a lot of very fasting-focused stuff, um, and some people choose our dietary advice, and some people, you know, perhaps it's not for them, and they have their own dietary plans. Um, so for some people, it's quicker than others, but because our program is so fasting-focused, uh, what we do, people typically fast three times a week, doing um, 24 to 42 hours of fasting. So we would encourage these individuals, just like you would go for a therapeutic treatment, like if you hurt your back, you go to the, you go to your sports chiropractor or PT three times a week till you got it under control, um, that you would show up for your fast. And some weeks they might be lighter fasts, like 24, some weeks they might be more intensive, like 42s. So of course, the more you mix it up, the better, the better it is. Um, or then those 248s that we were talking about too, uh, occasionally to change things up. Um, so we found that most people, if they do that for about six months, tend to come off of all of their oral medications and not need it again. So that's what we observed in the clinic. And then of course, really sort of striving to follow the nutritional um, program that you're following with Ben, though that the device is golden um, and that will just help you get you there faster. So it's, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to combine two approaches, be really on top of both approaches uh, and even come off of uh, metformin within a couple of months, two to three months. Thank you. Thank you, Marta. Awesome question. Great, great answer, Megan. Okay. We have Joanne next. Um, the question I have is, 
if I'm doing, sometimes when I do fasting, I'm hungry. And then sometimes I'm not hungry when I'm doing fasting. Why is that? Well, the activity, um, uh, activity can definitely increase hunger when we are fasting, but there's going to be different ebbs and flows, especially in burning body fat. So when we're really not hungry, when, when fasting, we tend to be burning quite a lot of body fat at the time. And then when we're hungry, when we're fasting, we tend to maybe be a little bit slower on burning body fat that particular day. And then there are other factors for it too, sleep quality. Um, so sleep quality has a huge impact on our overall physiological stress for the day. So if you get a great night of sleep, um, then the fasting will be a lot easier than if you say have a poor night of sleep, because then your body's going to be experiencing stress and stress can cause your blood glucose levels to go up. It can cause your insulin to go up, but it can also cause your hunger hormones to go up. So you're getting glucose, insulin and uh, hunger hormones all driven, you know, by cortisol. And that can make some days more challenging. Temperature changes can also make days more challenging. Um, specifically, if you live in a seasonal climate, sometimes fasting can suddenly feel a lot more difficult. But in something like the summertime, um, where it's very hot outside and you're perspiring more, you're losing a lot of electrolytes. So not having adequate electrolytes, well, that will cause your body to increase its physiological hunger. So the other day I was trying to do a short fast and we had just moved and we're living on a different side of the bay, different environment. And I was running around like a crazy woman with my head cut off and I was just sweating a lot. And I was so ravenously hungry. I could have eaten drywall. Um, but I was just perspiring more and I was not replenishing with sodium. Um, more. So increased activity, increased perspiration, uh, or just not taking adequate electrolytes will drive up hunger. We often find that people too, if the first thing they have in their morning is a glass of water with a pinch of salt, um, that actually has a huge impact on their appetite later on in the afternoon, because that salt will help support adrenal function and stress response throughout the day. And then you're not sort of getting that four o'clock fatigue crash in the afternoon that makes people want to want to eat. So electrolytes is another component to really you know, trying to get in a few pinches of salt throughout the day. And then, you know, coming from Toronto, you know, it'd be uh, minus 40 Fahrenheit in the winter, it would be 110 <laughs> in the summer. Um, so there's always this period as the seasons changed where your body needed to adapt and hunger would be higher. And then you would just, we would work with the Toronto patients and even myself on supporting electrolytes during those temperature extremes till the body adapted. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. Great question. Good to see you on here. We have one more, Megan, then we'll give you a nice goodbye. Don't eat uh, drywall, by the way. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, Agatha, I'm going to read her question for you. So she says, hi, Megan. All those 48-hour fasts, are those clean fast, like water fast, or fat fast? And did I hear right you are trying to start a family? Um, how do you start? How do you fast during that? I'm 42. And if I manage to keep my inflammation down, I have rheumatoid arthritis and optimize my health. We want to also have a kiddo. What fasting would you, would I, would you suggest with that to both prepare and then keep inflammation down during pregnancy? 
Okay, so <laughs> the first part of the question again. I'm sorry, Ben. Yeah, I know it was it was a long question. So those 48 hour fasts are those yeah. clean fast or fat or fast? Fat fast. Um, huge proponent of fat fasting, but they're more or less fast fast. So what we what we do is the real intention of the fast is to both not add insulin to the body. So you don't want to be taking anything that's really going to add insulin to the body. But then also we want to really let the body suppress insulin. So you just don't want to be drinking uh, oodles of fat, you know, throughout the day, because then you're, you're not going to be suppressing your own insulin levels, even though you're not adding more insulin to the system. So what we do is, you know, water, flat, mineral carbonated, I don't know, where I, I tend to stick to my filtered water with pinches of salt throughout the day. That's my MO. Um, uh, you can do different temperatures, you can go wild with with water. Um, but there are things that we call training wheels. Um, so adding a little bit of fat into a tea or coffee or having a cup of bone broth or having a cup of pickle juice, but these are not comfort things. They're not special treats. They're not fasting bonus things that you should have. They are training wheels to help extend the life of your fast. So if you're 12 hours into your fast and you want to rip out your hair, if you have a cup of bone broth or have a little bit of, say, a little bit of coconut fat. Uh, and that gets you another 12 or 24 hours of your fast. That's so worthwhile. Like the, the whole return on the, the investment there is worthwhile because you're getting in such a longer fast. Um, but you really got to think of them as training wheels. You know, we always talk about crutches. If, you're, if your legs aren't hurt, <laughs> um, why would you walk from, with crutches to get from point A to point B? It's only going to slow you down. But if you sprained your ankle, well, you're going to get from point A to point B a lot quicker if you use crutches. So, you know, there's plenty of like plenty of days where my fasts are water only. And then there's days that I want to fast, but like maybe I had a really poor night's sleep. It's just off. I'm not feeling good. And I know if I just have like, say, half a cup of bone broth, I can fast for like, I know it's going to power me through for another 12, 14, 20 hours of fasting. So I will have sort of that trade off there. So that's what we do with those individuals that are doing the 248 hour fast. Now, in terms of, uh, fertility and expanding my family um, right now, um, it's big focus on time restricted eating and not snacking and having proper meals. So, you know, there's not a lot of in intensive any types of fast. And the other day when I went to do a short fast, it was a 24 hour fast. So especially during the second half of your cycle. So women's cycles are divided into two, the follicular phase and then the luteal phase. So the follicular, what switches from one phase to the other is ovulation, which happens in the middle of our cycle. And during the, the luteal phase of our cycle, you know, we want to support or progesterone production. And we don't necessarily really want to be fasting a lot and we don't necessarily want to be super strict ketogenic either you know at this point um i i am in this part of my cycle so i'm supporting estrogen production or progesterone production um by eating some sweet potatoes and some other tubers and i never eat them alone we never eat them quote unquote naked um you know where i'm always dressing them up with uh uh, fat sources, protein sources, fiber sources um, on my on my plate. So I'm never just sitting down and eating a potato. Um, and so it's, it's just a small part of, 
of my meals. So we're incorporating more of those, especially in this half of the cycle. And I might be a little bit more cyclical with it at the first part of the cycle, but this time during fertility is all about micronutrients and all about supporting the body with you know good, healthy, natural fats, good amount of protein, and then um, strategically sort of using the healthier carbohydrates, especially in the second half of the cycle, to produce progesterone. So that egg can implant and you can actually conceive a baby and support the early development of that baby. So um, <laughs> I guess it is a bit of a pain if you're a usual faster because it does mean you need to eat more, especially when yeah. no one's home to cook for you. <laughs> you got to cook or do some Uber Eats or something, but yeah. Um, great breakdown explanation. So there's a few more questions. I'll get to those. We're out of time with Megan. I want to uh, first of all, Megan, share where they could go find more information about the fasting method, your socials, wherever you want to send them, share a little bit about that. Yeah, so our website is thefastingmethod.com. We're actually going to be down on Monday for maintenance because we have a huge surprise. It's launching Tuesday. It's actually supposed to be this last Tuesday, but things happen. <laughs> <laughs> cool. um, so the fastingmethod.com links to all of our socials are up there. Um, and then on mine, um, I post more random stuff, um, but you can find me across the board at Megan J Ramos, Twitter, Instagram. And you recently launched the podcast, right? We did. That was just the most last minute thing. And I keep forgetting <laughs> that we have it. We have to have you on soon. Uh, ben. I'd love to be on. We <laughs> talk about shooting and looking after. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we did. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely reach out. But yes, we have a, a podcast, uh, Fasting Method podcast with myself and uh, my wonderful colleague and friend, Dr. Nadia Padaguana. We call her our baby whisperer on the team. Um, she's our PCOS guru. And uh, yeah, we just talk about all things fasting. Yeah, go, we're going to put links for all that. Alina will post that. Nadia is great. I've had her on the podcast, the Keto Camp podcast. So Megan, thank you. We really enjoyed your lecture today, as we always do. You are a blessing to this world. Congrats on all the things you're doing and keep shining bright. You can feel free to sign off. And I'm just so grateful for you. So thank you for today. Thanks, Ben. We appreciate you so much too. And uh, thank you for everything. And thanks everybody for joining today. And uh, Ben, I'll catch you offline. I hope you enjoyed that fun conversation with Megan. Now you're never going to listen to Adele the same way, aren't you? <laughs> Go get Megan's book, Life in the Fasting Lane. We're going to drop a link for that book in the podcast notes. And just a reminder, if you want to get the challenge recordings, the seven days of trainings for keto and fasting and all my special guests, Dr. David Jockers, Megan Ramos, which you heard today, Cynthia Thurlow, and myself, head to ketochallengerecordings.com or click the link in the podcast notes right at the top and get access to it. It's going to be incredible for you and it's going to change your life. If you haven't left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review yet, please do so right now and take a screenshot, send that screenshot of your rating and review to support at ketocamp.com and we will mail you a paperback copy of Keto Flex. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I'll see you on the next one, which is on Friday. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. 
This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.